black ball. Black, black, black ball. is up everybody my name is james d fury and this is blackball you deserve to be heard you deserve to uncover the dreams you pushed aside for other things you deserve to let go of the criticism from the past you deserve the chance to be strong in your life you deserve to live a life of clarity and deep connection i believe all of this starts with the voice those are the words of my guest today she is what I would call uh, a Canadian legendary songstress, and she has a pile of respect, especially from her peers inside the music industry. And she is also the author of a new book, and that book is entitled, oh, that's the wrong book. <laughs> that book is entitled The Healing Power of Singing, Raise Your Voice, Change Your Life, what touring with David Bowie, single parenting, and ditching the music business taught me in 25 Easy Steps. And her name is M. Reiner. M, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for coming tonight. I appreciate it. I'm happy to be here. I started your book, and there were so many parts that, that kind of spoke to me. And I, I'm not even done it yet. I, I found myself rereading um, some of these, uh, some of the chapters that you have, because it's really interesting the way that you constructed it. Um, and you talk about a, lo a lot about how everyone can sing, and the key to, is to find the singer inside. And I was wondering, that is not your way of saying that everyone can can go do Pavarotti. But can you explain what you mean by that? And we're going to get into other stuff first. I wanted to open with that because we just finished talking about that off air and it was in my mind. So can you give, it, give me an idea of what you mean by that? Well, it stems from my own desire to be a great singer, which is something I really wanted to do when I was little, but I didn't have that natural singing voice. It wasn't encouraged when I was growing up. Um, it was actually discouraged. Um, and... I learned over time how to sing. So for, for someone who basically grew up in the middle of nowhere to yeah. go on and sing with David Bowie as a backing vocalist, which is one of my jobs uh, for a couple of years, to me, that told, that sent a message that it doesn't really matter who you are or where you're from or what your voice sounds like. You can uh, be a singer. So that's kind of the premise of the book. And I think, again, it's not about being, it's not about comparing yourself to others. It's about doing what is unique to you. Where did you grow up? <laughs> yeah, we, we had that question before between yeah. our emails with each other. Um, so I grew up between Forest, Ontario, which is a small town outside of London and mm. Sarnia. So it's sort of like on Lake Huron. Um, Is that like Mennonite territory, sort of? You know, it wasn't. It was more, it was on the border of Dutch farmer territory. Okay. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was, there really wasn't much development around at the time. It was just kind of 
you know, we lived by the lake. So mm-hmm. it was a, a childhood of not a lot going on, but TV and church and, you know, that's about it. Yeah. You, you, you mentioned in the book about where you grew up and that's sort of what I said in the email about how you never really mentioned the name. And I was a little confused by that, but, but, but no worries on that because I, I never like to admit that I'm from Whitby. So yeah. I kind of get it. Um, I'm going to ask you a question. Did you ever, do you ever watch uh, the actor's studio? You ever seen that show? Yes, I have seen it. Okay. I'm going to ask you a question the way that that host asks oh. people questions. Okay. Okay. Tell me the main difference between Miss Fawcett and Carl Dixon. <laughs> uh more hair on carl <laughs> yeah yeah but but um as far as your as far as your introduction into being sort of taken under people's wing or being taught something i i just was because miss fawcett was your piano teacher and you don't describe a very pleasant experience that you had with her and i couldn't tell by reading it if it was something that you needed to go through or she kind of knew what she was doing or if she just was not teaching you in the right way and then the carl dixon thing was really neat because i had a friend who once found a muddy waters 12 inch in a in a puddle <laughs> so so it reminded me of that when you found uh, his his cassette on the side of the road or whatever mm-hmm. so, yeah go ahead yeah so miss fawcett was my piano teacher uh she was really really hard on me like didn't make it fun at all and kind of poked me all the time and told me you know, that it wasn't great what I was doing. And what I learned from her is that I could do better. I think, you know, in this day and age, that kind of approach doesn't really fly or is looked upon in in a good way. But it, it did, it did kind of make me, I guess I felt towards the end of her life, because I, she was quite old, elderly when I went to her. And then I remember she went into hospital around the time I was 12 or 13. And by then I had already kind of discovered songwriting. So I wasn't taking, you know, I wasn't studying classical, but I felt in that moment with her, she was just like, you know what, I've always thought you could be great at this. So that's kind of where her like needling came from. Um, And then, you know, to fast forward to find, um, this cassette, this Coney Hatch cassette on the side of the road. And that led me to meet Carl Dixon, who eventually produced my first demos. Um, I think once you go through really like difficult relationships as a kid, anyone who's nice to you later is just like, wow, like, why is this yeah. person being so nice? And yeah. he was like literally genuinely a good person and wanted to help me with music. It, it wasn't, you know, there's no agenda on his part or anything like that. So mm-hmm. I felt really lucky to have those polarizing experiences. And and coming from a place uh, like Forest, Ontario, and then finding yourself in the year 2000, looking over a sea of people at Glastonbury. Mm-hmm. What was your prep like? You know, like, like, how do you get yourself into a state of mind where you can be in front of a hundred thousand people and keep your shit together. Like, I mean, that, is there any preparing for a hundred thousand people? Like, you know, most of the musicians that I knew that, that uh, started off in Toronto, you know, they were playing places like the reverb, you know, they were playing, you know, other places that, that you would, uh, you know, maybe the Phoenix was like the biggest place they would play while they were still kind of um, starting out. 
And then you end up in Glastonbury. Can you give me an idea of what it's like walking out on stage and seeing that and, and what you have to say to yourself in order to keep your shit together? Yeah, well, I mean, I played all those places too. And I think those were preparation for that, actually. Mm-hmm. And then when I got the job singing with Bowie, you have to understand that all of the shows that we did were like, what? Like, I can't believe I'm here, you know? So whether it was Saturday Night Live or Wembley Stadium or like the Jules Holland show and then Glastonbury, they were all kind of like unbelievable experiences. So it wasn't just like going from like, say what in Toronto to like, woo, I'm at Glastonbury, right? I forgot about Um, say what, yeah. (laughs) But I do feel like every one of those clubs like that I played uh, as a solo artist prepared me for, for that. What I wasn't prepared for was sort of having the focus off of me. Mm. I remember the first shows, like, you know, no one was looking at me. It was like, they're all looking at him. And then I realized, (laughs) all right, that's David Bowie. Well, you both are so pretty, right? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. No, I'm saying like he, he had a look, like he was like the originator of, well, maybe it wasn't the originator, but where he could emasculate himself aesthetically and still be really hot. Like him and Prince, I would say, were like that, right? Yeah. Um, that must have been interesting. Like, was it um, when, okay, let, let me, uh, I have so much I want to talk to you about because I really, I really find, my, I do a deep dive, obviously, into everyone that I interview and your deep dive was fantastic. I have oh, to thanks. Yeah, um, but the, okay, you, in, when you're 21, you sign a deal um, with, I believe it was Mercury Records. Mm-hmm. And then how did you get the call and, and, and how did it work where it was like you went from that record deal, you had your advance, you're making music videos, you're, you're 21, you're a kid, and you're living like your dream. And then you get a call to be a part of David Bowie's band or recording with him, one of the two. Uh, who called you? How did they, you know, uh, how were you found or did you vie for that spot with uh, a bunch of other people who were competing? Well... I got dropped from Mercury and then I just decided I'm going to do my own thing. So Mm. I was sort of led by joy and curiosity to go to New York city and do a bunch of shows there. Mm -hmm. And that's when I met another backing vocalist, this woman, Holly Palmer, and we became friends and she actually had the same manager as me for a little while. So when the spot opened up, for another backing vocalist to come in there, she recommended me. So it really wasn't like anyone like called me up or anything like Bowie on the phone or anything. Um, but I yeah. did kind of like sit with the musical director, Mark Platty, um, who produced many of Bowie's records. And that was sort of the vetting process, like just to see if I could sing and that I wasn't yeah. a jerk or whatever. Um and then I, I really just had the job before I even met David. So that was kind of freaky, you know? And were you, what, your relationship with David, what, what was that like? Was it strictly professional? And I mean that like, you know, were you guys personal friends or were, was it just kind of business is business or, you know, were you his muse? I don't know. Is there like a spectrum of relationship between, you know, professional background singer and muse, like somewhere in the <laughs> middle, you know? Well, um, it was very friendly, but I think he was like that with everyone in the band because he mm-hmm. wasn't one of those like singers that would go off and s- sort of be separate from the band. He'd always be with us. Okay. Um, and I guess we bonded over music. Uh, like we liked a lot of the same bands. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, we I wouldn't say that we got to know each other all that well, but I felt comfortable with him and 
curious about a lot of I'd ask them a lot of questions like you know tell me about the 70s and tell me about <laughs> when you did this and he'd love to tell me and yeah so it was very casual you know that way but it also made it difficult when he passed away because mm. I wouldn't count myself as a close friend and then I wouldn't count myself as a stranger so yeah. it was hard to know how to handle that I was it was sad it was difficult and um you couldn't really like be with the close family but you but you it's almost like I felt more of a you know the guy at the rec the music store in my town was like in tears and I kind of felt that you know like felt more in tune with what the world was feeling that that's a strange sadness isn't it I, I felt that you know I, I, a couple times in my life I felt um like sad and brought to tears over someone dying that I guess was famous or whatever, but I had never really known. Mm. And, and I guess, do you think it's because when you listen to somebody's music and you, and you, and you're uh, uh, you know, a fan or whatever you want to call it, that you kind of personalize it and you attach that person to your own nostalgia of whenever that soundtrack was playing in your life. Like what, what do you, what do you account for when it comes I think to that kind of stuff? Yeah, I think it's that, but I think it's also um, what that person represents, right? And I think Bowie represented so many things like possibility and change and, you know, the, the strange, you know, parts of art and music um, that gave everyone license to to step outside of the norm, right? Um, and I think it's that spirit of who he was that, uh, well, i I feel like I, I miss, you know? Yeah. I have someone that said, Oh my goodness, pour some <laughs> sugar on me. <laughs> it, it's interesting, isn't it? When you're the artist that is that let, are, are known for certain things. And, and I've talked to some artists and they, it's both a blessing and an albatross. They'll say, mm -hmm. do you feel the same way? Well, yeah. And it's a great question you bring up because I think by writing the book, I was really able to deal with that sort of, you know, someone mentioned pour some sugar on me, which is a cover I do. And I, you know, people don't bring it up at every interview, but for a while people were bringing up Bowie at every interview. Right. Um, and even today we're talking about him, but I feel there was an embracing of that story when I wrote the book. Um, there was sort of like a, I had discovered enough about myself by that point where it wasn't like an insecurity to talk about Bowie again. Right. So mm -hmm. now it's just kind of a wonderful chapter in my life. And I feel like if he were looking down at us, you and me right now, yeah. he hey, would David. just say, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he would probably just say, you know, you know, do your thing. Do your own you thing. Know, I, I'm glad that you said that because um, I went into this interview determined not to say his name first and i didn't <laughs> right so i wanted I to yeah I, there you go i it's so okay. i wanted i just wanted to but i want because you know there's a respect level that i wanted to show you because you, you're a talented musician you know what i kept on thinking about when i was doing the deep dive and and i'm not saying that you are embody this or anything but the whole 20 feet from stardom thing Okay. you know what i'm saying like like okay. there is a way that some like you could have gone in a totally um darker path if you thought that maybe the spotlight was always um glancing you and not mm -hmm. on you mm -hmm. but it doesn't sound like you did that it sounds like you took a, a road that was probably a lot more healthy yeah i mean i think that's wrapped up in a lot of other things you know i think i really 
came into getting that record deal when I was 21 with guns blazing, like from about say age 16 to, to 21, I was like, yep, I'm getting a deal and I'm doing this and it's all good. And then, mm-hmm. you know, as, as life goes on and we get older and we get hit with like events and incidents and things, then you sort of like, depending on who you are, you kind of get like knocked down a little bit. And um, I think that sometimes like collaborations or just that 20 feet from stardom thing is a little bit of a safety net when you're not quite sure what to do next. Right. Um, So that's a longer conversation, perhaps a therapy session. But well, listen, um, they, they call me Dr. J, <laughs> not because I'm good at basketball, right? No, <laughs> that could be your, yeah, you should change your name. on the. No, yeah, if you only knew how much therapy I probably need, honestly, like you wouldn't ask me anything. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I'm grateful for all of those associations. But then there comes a time if you really are passionate about what you're doing and you've, you've kind of had some awakenings where you're just like, I'm going to do my thing now. Right. Mm-hmm. So I feel in a lot of ways, that's kind of where I'm at now. There's so much power in that, in that whole, um, it's like a religion for some people, that perseverance, you know? And mm-hmm. I think a lot of people that don't know much about the music industry. And I, I, I know quite a bit because of, uh, people that I'm friends with mm-hmm. and, and the fact that I used to be an event producer and stuff, but there is a perseverance and talent to me are sometimes even, like, you know, that's why a lot of people make it. And, and some people are like, what? That person's a lot more popular than I think they should be. And it's like, it's because they just <laughs> keep going, right? Like, they, they, it's such a key ingredient to success, isn't it? It is. And I think we've seen, you know, I know you talked to a lot of politicians and things and Sorry. news newsmakers on your podcast, but I think yeah. we've seen that example of if you are headstrong and, you're, and you persevere no matter who you are, and what you've done in your life, you can become a leader, right? Um, so it's interesting, though, in music, because there's such a culture of like, especially in the independent scene, a bit of a culture of, well, you're supposed to be struggling, or like, how do you make a living at that? Or like, I want should I raise my prices? Like, there's sort of this horrible culture of just like, What's an NFT? Stay under the radar. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Still don't know what it is. So, um, I guess to me, perseverance and resilience—it's <clears throat> one of the things that can combat that kind of that feeling of doubt that is everywhere. Well, it's it's kind of pervasive in the independent scene, anyway. Yeah, you know, it makes a lot of sense. I, I've uh, I've noticed something, and I'll, I'll I'll put it to hip hop, but I feel like. Um, women in music probably not probably certainly uh go through a frustrating period uh once they're out of their 20s um or 30s or whatever and they uh, like rappers uh when i was young if you were like 36 and you were a rapper you were done you were like basically mm-hmm. a uh, a baseball catcher <laughs> you know it's like yeah. rickety <laughs> knees and you don't do anything anymore and that was it and maybe you'll go on like a legends tour or something um, women yeah. in music, they they have to obviously um, battle that idea, which I think is almost expired. And I'll tell you why in a second. But uh, that idea that if you don't look as young as you used to, and by the way, you still look great. So I don't know if you have this problem, but like just in general, if you don't look as young as you used to, then people are like, oh, you can't market. But the death of the labels as we used to know them 
and the fact that Gen mm-hmm. X is still buying new music from artists that they loved 20 years ago, that's a good sign, isn't it? I guess so. I mean, um, I don't know what that speaks to, you know, is it the the music or is it the youth? Like, I mean, I don't think anyone's buying stuff that they used to listen to because those people were young. It was just what they liked. Right. But Um, I think artists nowadays, well, I guess what I'm trying to say is that I'm 46. Okay. I'm generation X. I'm not sure how old you are. I think we're like, you're probably a bit younger than me, but like, it seems like the people that I was, okay, I'll give you an example. And it's a hip hop example, but Eminem. Okay. Mm -hmm. He puts out stuff. He was 27 when he came out, which is already old for a rapper. And he's Mm -hmm. 48 and he's putting out like music where his skill level has not diminished. And people Mm -hmm. my age are buying his records I don't recall that happening when I was like 15, 16. I don't recall my parents buying the new Kenny Rogers because Kenny Rogers didn't put shit out anymore. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Okay, like, I see what you're yeah, saying. I feel yeah. like the landscape has changed like that. Yeah, I think so. I think, I don't know. I like to think that we're not really like thinking about that as much, but maybe that's just sort of my perseverance, like where I'm just like, well, you know, I was talking to a friend today and he's like, oh, I'm 51 and it's too late for me to do my music, but he's like really talented. So I just said like, why would you decide not to do it? But the the whole age thing is so interesting because I've been thinking about this a lot lately about the the fuel, right? And the, the fervor and the power and the energy you have when you're like in your 20s to do your music. Um, I think that a lot of the success, my success sort of came from not considering that there would be a failure of any kind, right? Mm -hmm. And I think when you're young, you just, you have your eye on the prize, right? You go for it. And I mean, sure, let's not kid ourselves. Like we age and things change and, you know, um, people are going to say stuff or whatever, but sometimes I think it's about getting back to that, like keeping your eye on the prize and not letting all this wisdom that you've got, like sort of. <laughs> I love, how, erode, your, I love like, how your eyes light up when you said wisdom. That was great. <laughs> right. Like don't let it erode the dream. Like if you're meant to be doing music, you'll be doing it when you're a hundred, right? Like or 90 or 80. Okay. Let, let's get to the book for a moment. Cause, um, I know that you're probably really excited about it. I'm a writer and I love talking to writers when their book is like, I know your book came out last year, but the paperback I think just came out recently. I'm not hundred percent sure, but I think it's always been in paperback to be honest. Well, either way, um, (laughs) thank you. I've been seeing it though, pop up lately. And so it feels like that maybe that there's another Renaissance in sales for you or something like that. I would like to know if this book um, is a, is a child of the pandemic. It's not actually. Um, I came up with the idea in 2018, um, around the time that the Glastonbury Festival that I I was on that came out as a DVD, and also like Bohemian Rhapsody that movie came out, and I started to get really tuned into the great voices of the world and also my own voice, and I was also kind of going through a rock bottom in my life. So I just it came to me one night at like 1 a.m. like you know your voice like. It's something you've uh, 
struggled to find and hone and you know it's taken you all these great places and you don't even think about it like you don't like I, I can't I was kind of ungrateful for it mm. so that's that's when I started writing it but then you know pandemic obviously helped me focus and have something to work on you know that that was a blessing one of the interesting things about the book is that um, it's called The Healing Power of Singing, Raise Your Voice, Change Your Life, What Touring with David Bowie, Single Parenting, and Ditching the Music Business Taught Me in 25 Easy Steps. If you, your voice could be raspy by the time you're done reading the title. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a challenge to title I love the book. It. I'm not going to lie. I love Thank it. Thank you. I, I like it when I love it when people that are in the arts or writers or whatever when they when they look at like the um the standardized you know status quo of how to do things and they're like fuck that I'm gonna make a title that's eighty words I don't care you know I love that because <laughs> yeah yeah and so the, the the idea of the book um and I love how you personalize it you you sort of surround the advice with your personal stories that can kind of relate and I guess give the reader um an extra boost of credibility on your behalf because they're like, okay, well, this person's been there. Then they're telling me to do this. Hey, I should listen. Was, mm. was it hard to sort of balance humility with um, a professorial sort of uh, approach to, to teach people how to, how to find their voice? Yeah. I mean, I'm surprised that the book kind of hangs together as it does because I mean, it's very me to want to do quite a few different things. Like anyone who's followed my career knows like, Oh, I did an Irish covers album. I did a, yeah. I did like a jazz album. Here's my metal band. Like, I also have ADHD, and I think, so I, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, I wanted, though, to include all those things because I do feel like the stories are important. If someone's just looking for like a how to sing book, it's probably going to be a snooze, some of the chapters. But then by the same token, I know a lot of people who have resonated with the sort of memoir sections, but then breeze through some of the singing tips and then there's some people who embrace it all and um i guess i wrote the book that i would want to read right um, that's perfect and i think yeah there's there are things to do you'll, you, you'll never be out of things to do when you read my book there's action items and it really mirrored my own healing process um where i really tuned into my own voice and sharing my voice and teaching people and making like an ambient album when I was sort of at the lowest point in my life. Um, so hopefully those things resonate with people. When, and when I was listening to your, your latest album um, and I don't mean you sounded like them, but I kind of felt like the way I felt when I first heard pink martini. Which what's which album are you talking oh, the about? The last one that you sent. I'm sorry, I forget the name, but it, but it's in our email stream there. The one that you. Do, 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 do. Oh yeah. yeah, it's probably the one that no one's heard. So oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry. No, it's all good. But you know what? My first single is coming out in in November, so it's not that far. Okay, away. good. Um, no, but it did. It it, it, it has that. Um, it kind of has that cognac bar feel to it. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's supposed to have a beach feel. Mm -hmm. Um. I was really inspired. I know the music isn't out there yet, but people will hear it eventually. Really inspired by. I feel like I feel like Brothers. I don't know. I feel like a big a big man right now because I've listened to it the whole thing. You know, no one <laughs> yeah. else has. Yeah, I love that. But like Michael McDonald, Michael McDonald, Fleetwood Mac, Steely Dan. Mm. Like I think, and you know, when you were telling me before that 
you know, the pandemic sort of was sort of awakened your purpose and all of that. Um, that's what was awakened for me is just what music do I actually like? Yeah. You know, what do I really want to make? So sometimes I hate it when people say, Oh, she's reinvented herself or he's reinvented himself. Maybe he just, or she just evolved like, you know, that yeah, or was doing the wrong thing for 20 yeah, years. Right. Yeah. Maybe that, that that's true in a lot of cases, <clears throat> Brian Adams. Um, anyways, no, but can I ask you what you were healing from? Yeah. So tons of things. I mean, do you have a couple more? I hours? have like seven. I, this is my channel for <laughs> till the next day. So go ahead. Yeah. The healing channel. Yeah. Well, I mean, we all kind of go through, I think, well, we don't all go through it, but a lot of us go through a point in our lives where it's like, you know, shit hits the fan. And for me, it was my husband leaving. My kids were like four and six. Yeah. Um, and it was not something that I saw coming. So um, it was a difficult time, but it kind of cracked open a whole bunch of, I think it went the best way it could go, um, which is I started to look at myself. Um, I'm not saying that the way that my marriage ended was right, yeah. but um, you have an opportunity when stuff like that happens to say, well, what's my role in it or what could I do better and around 2020 I stopped drinking which was something I you know I kind of grew up in an environment where there was drinking so just didn't want to bring that into my family um, and consequently it made me a better singer to give that up um, made, made a lot of things better actually but I don't judge anyone for drinking um, so there was a lot of a lot of kind of inner stuff to work through. Um, but the good thing is it can be done. Um, I'm glazing over how extremely difficult and painful it was, but I don't like to dwell on it, I guess, but um, it was bad. And um, it just takes time. It just takes like tiny, like tiny steps. These are my tiny <laughs> steps. <laughs> so you're of bouncing it. two basketballs. Like a cat. Yeah, a cat. Yeah, that, that works too. Yeah. <laughs> Just do but that for like five the years. The way my daughter fights, five. she's six. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. I understand, though. Um Sorry, the voice of Dean Blundell is in my brain right now saying, don't make it about you. And I swear I'm not going to, but... You can make it about well, you. Well, I'm just... When you said that, I mean, I am right now going through what you went through, um, you know. Mm. And, um, you know, it's... Uh, 
that part that you said about it, it made you take a look at yourself and 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 maybe the type of things that that you might have needed to shed or what your role was in the deterioration of the relationship if there was one and you know i've uh, i've been going there lately and and it that is a very powerful place to go because if you um slip into the darkness it's really dark you know and it is yeah and if you but if you find that way to convert that energy into change and to evolution, wow, you know. Yeah, but here's the thing. Um, people always want to put like a time, like a deadline on the healing, right? Like I remember a year or a two or two year anniversary after my breakup and people just kind of expect you're all good to go, you know? <laughs> and I think after two years, I actually just said, I need to feel like the anger and I need to feel shitty. Like I just need to feel it and not expect that I'm going to feel better. And it's weird because when you surrender to that, then you can find some something. Right. Mm -hmm. But I think the point is like, we don't, we're in a culture of where everyone feels like you've got to like get better or like find the way or whatever. And I know my book is a little bit about that, but it, it really was not, overnight you know there was you know I think the things that really helped me were like writing so writing my book uh journaling and also music like just listening to music and and being around girlfriends and stuff like that so it's just a and time right yeah hopefully I'll find a a, a bunch of girlfriends to be around as well because <laughs> That always helps. But you know what the thing? Yeah. yeah. No, I was just joking. Um, no, actually, no, but you know, no, actually, I'm not joking. I was joking no, until, not, I just no. re- until I just realized that um, some of the greatest, not some, almost all of the greatest, you know what? Men don't give good advice now that I'm thinking out loud in the middle of a live podcast. But, <laughs> but the women that I've spoken to about this transitional phase mm-hmm. have been extraordinarily helpful. Like, you know, like, I'm a talker, I'm a communicator, but I'm also learning, I think, how to listen better. Mm. And, you know, and you know what I think I owe it to? I also quit drinking. I quit drinking Mm. in 2019, just before the pandemic hit. Mm. Um, And it was, again, that yin yang, because I was like, yeah, I'm not drinking, you know? And then it was like, holy shit, what the fuck is this? And it was anxiety, right? Like it was, Mm -hmm. I didn't realize how anxious I was. And I don't know if that, was that the same for you? Yeah, and I didn't realize it. See, here's the thing. Um, I quit drinking and then we had the pandemic, right? So there wasn't a whole lot of opportunity to perform or play live, right? So mm-hmm. I actually played this July in front of a huge audience in London outdoors. And it was, I'm not even sure. I Like there was a point an hour before the show or I wasn't sure I was going to be able to get on stage. Um, I was just like in the hotel room, like, Oh man, I've got to just visualize something to get me out of bed. Um, And that I think is what you're talking about. Just like the clarity. It's just too, you know, it's a spinal tap too much perspective, right? Um, Too much, too much much realness, too much clarity and too much feeling for people. Like, you know, I, I really love not feeling, um, that's probably some of the things that you're feeling. And it's just like, you, once you kind of go through one difficult thing, you hopefully are better for the next one. How did you feel when you got off the stage that night? 
felt exhausted, but I mm. felt proud of myself. Um, you know, all it takes, I think, you know, you're a musician, right? So, you know, when you play your first new song the first time, it's just like kind of getting over that hump or like doing that first thing for the first time. Um, yeah, and just and proud, right? So just kind of sticking to those decisions that you know aren't going to sabotage your life, right? Was there a part in your book that you were learning in real time as you wrote it? Totally. Yeah. I think it's dangerous to write nonfiction. Yeah. <laughs> I say that my husband is, uh, totally. my, ne- my new husband wow, that was is uh, amazing. Yeah, it was. Well, it seemed quick, but, um, I'm not judging. I'm, I'm actually really happy for you because I feel like you. it's going to be another decade of darkness for me, but go ahead. It felt like a long time though. So don't even, yeah. um, but yeah, uh, I don't even know what I was talking about. Sorry. So, we were talking about how um, if there was uh, parts of the book that were happening in real oh, time yeah. and you said, don't write nonfiction because it's dangerous. I think. Oh yeah. Because yeah. I mean, I felt, I feel I've changed even a lot since writing the book. I wouldn't mm-hmm. write the same book now, but I do stand by it. And I think it's a great tool. Um, reading the audio book back was, uh, so this to my husband, who's a writer. So he really understands. And he actually, um works with my publish the publisher i that signed me um but uh it was like it was talking to me it was really unnerving you know oh, like that's interesting so i think the whole process has been a learning experience so i don't even know if there's something you're working on that is like a mirror for you uh yeah well i have a book deal right now that i'm and i'm writing a book but it's about a uh i'm an atheist writing a book about a crazy christian cult <laughs> but right, it's nonfiction, okay. right but it's right. you know so i write it with like i'm typing like like you can hear me typing from two counties over because i'm just like you know because i'm so angry at the things <laughs> that, I'm, that i'm reading um, right but it's interesting though because it, you know it writing is obviously the most therapeutic thing that i do mm. um and and singing and 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 writing lyrics and all that is if i don't do it for a week in hindsight, I, it was a bad week. Yeah, totally. You know? Um, I, I, you mentioned something. I'm sorry. I don't, I don't use notes when I, when I interview people, I try to remember the things that I've read. So if I get this wrong, let me know. But you mentioned about growing up in the eighties mm-hmm. in a pre-internet world. And I was all, I, I, I like to ask people that are roughly my age or whatever, or just people who remember growing up um, before the internet. <laughs> and and what it's like to be a generation, and I think we're the only one, unless you're a very youthful boomer, but if you're in a generation X or if you're an older millennial or whatever, that straddling between analog and digital, between pre and post internet, mm-hmm. what are some of the things that you think you took with you that you learned that you kept from the pre-internet age? Well, that's a great question because that's been my whole last six months is trying to figure out how to release music, like accepting both of those worlds, because I do believe both are important, right? And I think it's actually an asset to be the age that we are because, you know, we knew what it was like to go to the Kmart and buy the NXS single on 45 and just like save all our money to get it right um but um my parents ran a newspaper in our basement uh when we were growing up and it was about chickens um (laughs) sorry (laughs) 
but yeah best here's... best what is it best cock and show what was yeah, that that yeah. was an actual award that would be given at these poultry shows i have so many jokes that i'm not going to say but go yeah, ahead just give people a minute to absorb <laughs> yeah. that yeah best cock and show yep okay yep. um so what i learned though from them is that like because they did their newspaper very analog right mm. like it was like rolling the sheets out on like with wax onto like a light table and whatever um but the thing that i learned from them is they would go to these poultry shows where they would give those awards and um the, my mom would really be like not just a salesperson for the newspaper but like connect with people like she really cared about these people who showed their chickens and like won their awards or whatever and they like she knew their lives right and I think that is something that is important when you're doing any business I guess is just to kind of treat your people your customers your listeners or whoever it is like you would want to be treated um and I think the digital thing, we think we're kind of connected, but I like to, like, I have these pens um, that I made and they have like my, Oh, right on. well, yeah. this is not the one, but I made Let's pens go. like this. Um, and I send them out to my fans with like little letters and stuff. So I love this combination of oh. the old school with the new, right? But I think you can't deny the new stuff too, right? The new ways the, of doing things. That the pens really that old. you send them. The new with ways. The le- yeah. <laughs> the new the- ways of doing things. Sorry. What do you ahead. mean? <laughs> no, Is geez. this on? Yeah. Uh, can you hear me? Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. No. The, it, it's it's weird because you know I I don't want to. You know how like when you're young. And, and, and like, you know, with me, especially uh, when I was growing up in the suburbs in Whitby and, you know, uh, I was playing like run DMC or NWA or something. And my parents were just like, what the fuck? Right. Like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I shudder to think, cause my kids are eight and six mm. and, and I shudder to think what it's going to be like. Cause when, 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 you know, when they grow up and start listening to music, and because I want to be one of these people that like stays current and tries to see like the the talent in these new artists, and then mumble rap came out, and I was like, "Fuck you!" Like I, you know, <laughs> you just gave up. Did you? I just I can't find the goodness in that particular style, right? And uh, and and I can't tell if I'm crotchety and out of touch, uh-huh. or if I'm right. You know, I just I just don't know. I have a theory about this: is that. Okay. Like, I'm like you, I like to try to keep up too, but, um, and even just saying that sounds really out of date, but I think we're, we have a different, like we're more receptive at a certain age to music, right? So it's really hard at this age to just like be so down with like a new artist where you like listen to them over and over and dream of them, right? Like we're just different now, right? Um, But I don't know, what do you think? I don't know. I, 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 I think, I think that when, <clears throat> in hindsight, I think that some of the times when uh, the older generation would say, Hey, this, this new music that you're listening to isn't as good as the shit that we listen to. They were right. A lot of the times, you know, like, like there was yeah, something about, sure. yeah. Like, like, you know, like 
um, just to think of an example off the top of my head or whatever, like Jimi Hendrix was better than Blink-182. Like, is that <laughs> even the same genre? Like, apparently it is, but really, is it? You know, because yeah. I, I went to a Nirvana concert when I was like in, I don't know, I think it was grade nine or something like that. It was a horrible show, but I love Nirvana. Mm-hmm. So there's right. this weird like duality at work. And so um, I don't even know if that answers your question, but I, I think... I think that what what happens is is that we're seeing we we have so much information coming at us. We have so much data coming at us, so much music coming at us. Maybe we're just noticing maybe I'm just noticing a lot of crappy music because I'm just being flooded by music, right? Like it, it, you know, there could be a lot more good music out there too, but the abundance. Like you were saying before, you know, you had to save up money to buy like the vinyl for whatever. Like, remember how much a Cure album was when we when we were young? I don't know if you remember, but like, if you wanted to buy a Cure record, it's like forty six dollars or something like that back in the day, because you had to import it and everything. I th- so I I think I think maybe we're trying. I think we're still trying to learn how to navigate digital distribution. You know, like anyone can put out something now, and that's great sometimes, but those other times it's not so great. Yeah, I I wonder also if it's a little bit like. When you were younger, when we were younger, you could kind of wrap your arms around like the top 40, right? It's yeah. like, okay, I can understand and compute these 40 songs, right? Mm. But now with so much going on and so like just exponential amounts of music, right? Um, we're almost comparing, I think, to that like ability to wrap your arms around those songs. And now it's like, well, I can't do it, right? I physically can't do it. And I almost think, it might be useful just, well, I mean, I'm telling myself like, okay, I can only absorb the music that I can. Right. Like, even if it's brand new music, not gonna know every cool thing that's going on and just, just admit that I'll never really (laughs) get it all right. Understand or like, I'll never know it all. Yeah. There, there is a, uh, there's a part, of, I, I agree totally with that because there's a part of me that thinks that there is a, um, there's a way to be an artist where you can, you can maintain sort of like an authenticity to yourself. If you don't try to be something, but just allow yourself to be what you are. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Did, yeah. did I just sound like a life coach there? You did. <laughs> and that's you you're officially certified. Um, I think it's, it's, you know, I think, People say that a lot, like, you know, be your authentic self or whatever, but like how many people actually give themselves the license to do it? Mm. And I think it's incredibly liberating when you're just like, you admit that this is me, right? I I made this list towards the beginning of the year because I felt like I was kind of in a wellness trap where I felt like, oh, I'm always like telling people all these nuggets of positive wisdom that I have and I I do stand behind all those posts and things like that but I noticed I was talking about it a lot and not doing Mm. right and my my daughter went to an art camp and one day she came back and she's like everyone's talking about art but no one's doing it you know and I was like she's got such a she's got she sounded offended by it almost eh (laughs) she was day they did a lot of art so it was better this year I made this list of things that just make me joyful right even if it was cringy to put on my list I just like listed all the things that really make me joyful and that was a starting point for me to just like start doing those things and not 
talking about them, right? Even though right now I'm talking about it. So. <laughs> You're a good talker. Um, is there <laughs> is there a have you ever thought or pondered? This might be a silly question because it, you know you you did what you were meant to do, but let's just say you didn't. Do you know what you would have done instead? That's a good question. I know that when I was 17, I was juggling two choices. It was either go to this program, Music Industry Arts at Fanshawe College in London, or um, go to, um, they don't call it Ryerson anymore, right? Um, oh, I don't know. They call it uh, Toronto uh, Metropolitan. Yeah. Well, but at the time, such a great it was, name. <laughs> yeah, it rolls off the tongue. But anyway, um, for journalism. So, you know, I wanted to do what you're doing, basically. Um, I did get that chance to, to host on, on the radio for a little bit in the last few years. Um, but I think it still would have been something to do with voice or communication. Like it wouldn't be something like, I wouldn't be a chef. Like, I guess that's creative, but I, you know, it would be something in communicating. I think, what about you? Oh, well, it's funny. Cause, um, <laughs> I was one of those people who floated for so long, you know, like I, I didn't do homework in school. I got bad mm -hmm. grades. You know, I dropped out of college. I was couch surfing in my 20s, trying to get my shit together in the 30s. Love, did a pile of drugs, was a rave promoter for a while, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. I had some successes and some. I, I, I really um, just in the last like four years have really just finally like said, okay, enough's enough. Like, let's figure this shit out. Mm -hmm. So I don't know because I didn't know how to handle um, a traumatic childhood. You know, like I, I, and this is just something recently that I've learned. Like I didn't okay. know um, that it was so important to deal with your shit because I didn't know how to define your shit. I didn't know why I was anxious. I exactly. didn't know, you know, I didn't know why I was bad at relationships. I didn't know why mm -hmm. I was afraid that every girlfriend I had would leave me. I, I just, mm -hmm. you know, why was I like that? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, um, you know, when you, when you figure it out that, you know, there's, there's reasons, there's a cause and effect that happens that shapes your personality and gives you habits and gives your perspective a tint that you might not be able to see through sometimes. Okay. Yeah. Like that, that was powerful to, to feel. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I think, uh, I, I think, you know, I, I know how old I am and I, and I, I look at myself as a, as the way that, I kind of ideally would have liked to have been when I was 26 and what mm -hmm. it does, it kind of tricks my consciousness into thinking that I can, I can uh, like attack this world as, as a, in a positive way as if I am 26. Why not? Yeah, totally. You know? Absolutely. That's exactly where I'm at as well. And it's liberating. I think it's, I know you're in a kind of a difficult time at the moment, but the fact that you're aware of this and I think people listening will be nodding as well. The fact that you're aware that you can look at your own capacity to get past that stuff um, is so there's opportunity now, right? Cause it's the yeah. people who don't look at it or don't know that it's there. And that's the difficult thing about having trauma I think not that I'm an expert on it, but you know, I went through my own. Right. But it's like, it's your norm when you're a kid. Cause it's imprinted on you. So. Yeah. yeah that's, that's kind of, a, you know, it, it's funny how life is a uh, um, sort of painfully ironic, I guess you would say like the, the shit that you deal with when you are not, when you're not armed to uh, defend yourself from it, 
is mm-hmm. almost the thing that almost always defines people when they're older. Like it's it's like you know, the lack of choice you have when you're young mm-hmm. is 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 breathtaking when you actually look at it. You know, when I look at the stuff that I that I went through, I'm you know, I I I look at this little boy and I've noticed that every 5 years or so, I look back at the guy that I was 5 years ago mm-hmm. and I don't feel like the same person. Mm-hmm. And I used to think that that was a curse and now I think it's a blessing. Oh, it totally is. And I think, you know, it's easy to get caught up in thinking, well, I wasted all those years, you know, like, yeah. but I, I think that we need that story. And I, I talked to my husband about this a lot that because we really wish we met when we were in our 20s and in Toronto, you know, we were both living in the same place and never met. Uh, but we we took different courses, right? And I think that to see all of that learning and all of those experiences is just adding up to who you are at the moment and just, you know, being good with the moment and not even like giving the past any, I mean, you kind of have to look at the past to heal, but like dwelling on the past, I think is um, just, there's no time, there's no time for it really, you know, like, You know, so now we say, oh, we're super grateful to have this time with each other and any time that we get now. Right. So you kind of maybe treat it like it's more precious, I guess. What what years are you still in Toronto? No, I live near Stratford now. Oh, right on. Mm-hmm. Have you gone to this? Have you run into Justin? You know what? I saw him in the early days playing on the steps of the theater. Oh, really? And I remember like thinking, I actually tried to like reach out to my like record people at the time. I was like, you guys got to check this guy out. Yeah. There's all kinds of girls around him. And yeah. it was just <laughs> around the time that he ended up signing. With yeah. You sounded like a nun there. You better check that boy out. There's so many girls around him. <laughs> yeah. Stop um, that boy. Yeah. I noticed uh, in my little deep dive there that you lived uh, near Roncesvalles for a while. What other neighborhoods you lived in? Because I know that if you spent at least a decade in Toronto that you lived in at least four or five neighborhoods. Yeah, I love to move around. So I started in the beaches. I went, lived in Roncesvalles for a while. I went and lived like downtown, like King and Spadina for a while. Um, I've, lived I've lived in all three of those places. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. those three exact places. <laughs> I've, I've lived King and Spadina, like exactly. Um, mm-hmm. I lived at college in Spadina. I lived in the beaches. I lived in Parkdale. I lived on Ronsi. I yeah. lived in several places in the annex. I lived in the neighborhood for a while. Yeah. I think yeah. we've just learned that we are the same person. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. Thank God. <laughs> now I don't have any more work to do. Um, yeah. no, but I, I, I Toronto, um, did you move away from Toronto because, I feel like Toronto has an expiry date when it comes to allowing yourself to get to know yourself. And then for me, it turned into like, who am I trying to be now? You know? Yeah. I mean, I moved because I got the job with Bowie and I wanted to explore New York. That was, you know, but I kind of felt like I used, that sounds like horrible. I used Toronto. I used it as a place to like. Toronto's a whore. Just use it. It's fine. (laughs) I I honed my craft for singing there, like playing in clubs, right? I started off not knowing what I was doing and I left pretty good. So, um, yeah, it was, I'm glad that I lived there for that time, but yeah, it was time to move on. 
And so what, what do you see? Uh, so you have an album coming out in November. What's the name of the album again? Well, it's a single coming out in November, but it comes oh. out next year. Oh, okay. So the Which single one? will be called Valencia. I'm announcing okay. it tomorrow, but I guess I'm announcing it right now. On your I, br- I just podcast. made news. Yay. Take that Globe and Mail or whoever. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. No, what was the question? I just, when the album is coming out, so that's next year, the album is coming out. Mm-hmm. Are, do you have tour dates set and everything? Yeah, they're kind of coming in and I'm excited because I get to go overseas for the first time oh, in like nice. ever. I was going to ask you if you needed a biographer, but your fucking husband's a writer. So there goes that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's pretty good. Pretty yeah. Good. Is he off camera? Uh, I don't know. He's roaming around, keeping the kids quiet while I talk okay. to you. I think. Um, listen, I, I, I think there's another show coming on in about five minutes. I would love to do this again because I feel like we... Uh, I don't know. It, it flows nice. Like yeah. our conversation. I want to interview you. So yeah. let's just do that. Okay. Hold on a second. Let's do that. <laughs> All right. Go ahead. Okay. James. <laughs> yes. Sit down to brass tax here. I've got three minutes. Tell me your yeah. life story. I haven't paid my taxes in years. I don't know. Let's go back. I'm more comfortable on this side. Okay. It's like the side of the bed. You ever do? Do you have the side of the bed? Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. My side of the bed for the last two years of my marriage was at the foot of the bed. Oh no! I'm just kidding. Just that's just metaphorical. Okay, all right. <laughs> M. Griner, I really you. appreciate the time. I enjoyed this. Thank you so much for for coming, and I hope you come back again soon. And I, um, you know, good luck with everything. Again, once again, the book. Hold on, I got to take a deep breath. The healing power of singing. Raise your voice. Change your life. What touring with David Bowie, single parenting, and ditching the music business taught me in 25 easy steps. I did that in one breath. It's amazing. And thanks everyone for listening and thanks for your awesome questions. And uh, yeah, we'll talk. No problem. Thank you. I appreciate it. M. Griner, everybody. Have a good one. Good night. Bye. That was awesome. She's amazing. Um, I'm really happy that uh, I didn't think too hard with this interview. I I was going to, I, I, I did that thing where that I did with Chomsky where I made a bunch of notes and then, um, and then I just, I ditched the notes. I think I remembered all the questions from the notes, so it doesn't matter. But wow, what a great conversationalist. I feel like I, uh, yeah, I feel like we connected there. I don't know if you guys feel the same way, but I hope you did because uh, I really enjoyed that. And um, okay, so tomorrow is Heinous Cases. I'm going to actually, before we go, before I start plugging my other shows, I just want to read that, that mantra again. You deserve to be heard. You deserve to uncover the dreams you pushed aside for other things. You deserve to let go of the criticism from the past. It's a big one. You deserve the chance to be strong in your life. You deserve to live a life of clarity and deep connection. I believe all of this starts with the voice. She's great. She is awesome. M. Griner. Those are the words of M. Griner. And once again, I'm going to plug her book again too because fuck it. Her book is called The Healing Power of Singing, Raise Your Voice, Change Your Life. What Touring with David Bowie, Single Parenting and Ditching the Music Business Taught Me in 25 Easy Steps. Okay, so tomorrow, Heinous Cases with Rob Kivlikin. Next week, I have... Oh, I'm so excited for this. I'm, I'm going to play... I'm, I'm just going to... I don't even care if I get dinged by her record label because I have won every challenge. Every time Facebook or YouTube has said, fuck you, we're demonetizing you, I have been like, no, you're not, because I'm going to challenge this shit, and I'm going to say I'm playing the music of the artist on the show, and you can't fuck with that because it's good promo. So before we go, I'm going to play the promo video 
for my guest next week because I'm fucking super excited. And then we're going to come back and I'm as soon as this promo is done, it's only 40 seconds. We're going to come back. I'll tell you what's on tap for tomorrow and then next week. But guys, just, just listen to this. This is just the best ever. Major one. Major one, guys. I mean, ugh, she's so dope. She's also friends with Eternia, so this is a mutual friend of mine. So um, that's going to be dope. She's like one of the dopest rappers in Canadian history, male or female. It doesn't matter. She's major one. She's fucking amazing. Okay, so tomorrow, Heinous Cases with Rob Kiblikin. Next week, uh, Lane Admiral is going to be here. He is the ex-Plymouth Brethren um, member who uh, who was on the show before. Um, he suffered abuse from the hands of, of a couple elders in the, in the Plymouth Brethren. Uh, and I can't remember if he was excommunicated or left, but either way, he's out. Um, he's also an ex-military guy. Just a straight-up good dude. Um, but we're, we might be breaking news, um, which is awesome because I just broke the news of the announcement of the M Griner single. Once again, take that Globe and Mail. Um, but Lane Admiral and I spoke tonight. It turns out that there is a cult promotional code that one of the biggest companies on the planet is using. So if you use this code with this big giant company, the cult gets money. That's <laughs> just ridiculous. So Major One next week, Lane Admiral next week, a bunch of other stuff I'm going to set up. Um, I, I'm going to do another couple of uh, Plymouth Brethren, Brethren interviews next week as well. Uh, other than Lane, um, we're going to start talking to David Wallace again. David Wallace, by the way, is going to have a show on the Dean Blundell Network. Um, it's not going to be called Ratfucker. Um, Ratfucker is the documentary by Jesse Brown. Um, I actually can't wait to watch it. Um, you know, uh, I've grown to like Jesse Brown. I, I, him and I didn't get along in the past. There was a bunch of reasons why some of it was my fault. It's not like I'm innocent, um, you know, basically ever. So, um, but you know, he, he, he has my respects. Uh, I talked to him on the phone a couple of weeks ago about the work that I was doing with, uh, with interviewing the ex brethren members. And so, um, you know, I, I'm going to try to get him on the show uh before the documentary comes out we'll see if we can make that happen i don't know jesse doesn't really do other people's podcasts too much i don't think but either way um you know we have a lot coming up uh again tomorrow it's uh rob kibliken heinous cases we're going to take a deep dive into the paul bernardo case and until then we'll see you next time on black belt thanks everybody black 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 Hi, I'm 
Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com.